0: Hi there, I'm Neve Shaw and this is Humans of Space, a podcast about curious people. More specifically, it's chats with people that I've met along the journey so far in getting to space. People from many parts of the world, people who've inspired me, people who do interesting things, know interesting stuff, have figured out great things, or people who want to change the world. Curious people who are happy to chat with me about their lives, their passions and explore together what drives us to be the people we need to be. I like to think that Humans of Space is a blend of space, science, curiosity and creativity for ears of all kinds, but I guess that's up to you to decide. Today, we're going to hear from Romain Charles, who works as crew support for the European Space Agency at their astronaut centre based in Cologne. And like the rest of us, Romain is in lockdown, so he'll be speaking to us from home offsite. Romain's very interesting. He also participated in a 520 day analog Mars mission in Russia back in 2011. And he also has been to Ireland a few times and participated in some of the events that I've been putting together. So I'm really excited to share a little bit more about Romain with you all. My guest today is Romain Charles, who I've met through the European Space Agency's Astronaut Centre. And he's been a constant in a lot of my space activities related to the European Space Agency since we met back in 2016 when I first visited the Astronaut Centre. Uh, Roman has been to Ireland uh, twice now, and he's part of an event that I make with the British Council and Andrew Smith and Science Foundation Ireland for Science we called Baking in Space. And he's always a huge hit and he's a really interesting person. So, Romain, you're very welcome to the Humans in Space podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for all the kind words.
0: So where are you now?
1: So right now I'm in Cologne, Germany.
0: And what is lockdown like for you there then?
1: I feel very lucky for the lockdown. First, because in Germany, it was not as severe as in France, for example, where most of my family is, based on my yeah. experience. It felt a bit easy. It's it's tough to say that in some ways, but um, yeah, just uh, to spare a few words, I simulated a trip to Mars. So I spent a year and a half in uh, the mock-up of a spaceship with five (laughs) other guys, simulating the communication delays. So we didn't uh, have the internet, for example, and we were in sealed modules so that we would really feel in, uh, in space. And so right now, the lockdown is being confined with my wife having access to the Internet so I can communicate <laughs> with my friends and family, and I can see the sun on the, uh, through the windows. So yeah, it, it felt OK. I had all my little routines that I had built up during Mars 500 um, yeah. that kicked in quite quickly, so I felt quite lucky. Yes, of course. So
0: This is probably a doddle in comparison to Mars 500, which we'll, we'll talk about in, in greater detail. That was a mission that lasted 520 days to simulate a mission as if you go to Mars and return. That's right, isn't it?
1: That's correct, yes. It was a scientific mission. So the idea was to ask a big question. Is man psychologically and physiologically able to endure the confinement of a trip to Mars? So in other words, can we spend a year and a half in sealed modules with five other guys without killing each other? and still working efficiently (laughs) together. And um, and spoiler alert, the answer is yes, we can.
0: And that must have been tough. I'll get into that later. Just give a little bit of context. So you're from France. Which part of France are you from?
1: From a department called La Mayenne. So it's west part of France, very close Mm -hmm. to Brittany.
0: You grew up there. You went to school there.
1: So I grew up uh, there, yes, in the countryside. And then for my studies, I went to different cities in France and and I graduated from an engineering school in Clermont-Ferrand, in the center of France. And uh, one of the important aspects of of those studies and something that was not that usual at that time is that for my studies, it was strongly advised to spend a year abroad, uh, six months in university and six months in a company. And I found this quite interesting. I chose this school in particular because of this aspect, uh, this year abroad. And um, yeah, believe it or not, I spent a year in England uh, for for these studies.
0: Where was that? Where in England did you go?
1: So I spent six months in Cambridge at the engineering department over there and six months in uh, Rolls-Royce in Derby.
0: That must have been very interesting. Was it a big culture difference for you to go from France to England?
1: Yes, because I found these uh, internships through a tutor at my school. When he proposed that, I was kind of, you know, I'm coming from Brittany and England is that close that I felt like I would like something more exotic than England. (laughs) But um, when I arrived there, everything was so different, even though we are so close uh, geographically. Um, a lot of things made no sense to me and uh, and it was a real experience and yeah, I, I still keep fond memories of that.
0: Can you remember what the differences were that were a shock to you, it was even one?
1: Well, um, well, the food already was uh, quite a shock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but I got used <laughs> to it. I found a little routine, some little thing that I really loved, and, and still today, um, I have a few things like the Stilton cheese. I really enjoy this one. Yeah, I know. The challenges I had when I arrived that I had studied English for 14 years in France, mm-hmm. and I arrived in England, and I thought, yeah, I can, you know, go by. And I just couldn't understand what the people were saying, and they couldn't <laughs> understand me either. And um, I had to find a place to stay, I had to buy some food, I had to open a bank account because uh, of my internship and everything. And without being able to communicate properly, wow, that was tough, but it's part of the adventure.
0: It is part of the adventure, yes. And I enjoy those cultural differences when, when you go to a new country, but there's something different about visiting a place and living in a place. It's very different and um, I can only imagine how extreme that might have seemed to you. And then, you know, the English accents are so diverse and, and Ireland would be the same that you were probably learning, you know, a, a very sort of generic version of English without the accent. So it's very different in practice in comparison to what you do in your exactly. studies. Exactly. And um, So when you were younger, Roma, did you always aspire to be a part of space or what were the things that kind of were your passions when you were young?
1: I think it comes from curiosity. I was Mm. curious when I grew up. I was, you know, growing up in the countryside. So I was observing what was around me and um, going to the farm and seeing the animals and everything. So I was interested in many different things. And space, I tried to understand exactly where it came from, and there is no real point. Maybe there is one. I'm not sure exactly, but um, we had every year um, a young lady who was coming from Germany to practice her French, and she was staying in in my family uh, for a few weeks every year. And um, Heike would come and came one year with... A star seeker. I don't know if, how you call that in English, but um, it's just a cardboard board with the constellations. Yes. And, and then yeah. you just look at the sky and try to find the constellations. And I think that may be the start of um, of a passion that I still have today for, for space, for astronomy, for human space flight, for everything related to space. And after that, it was through reading, discovering um, science fiction for the books, or magazines where uh, they would talk about space. And and at that time, the French astronauts were quite big in the media. Um, So, of course, it's not uh, Thomas Pesquet or Tim Peake. It was those things um, fueled my passion. and, And I think it started from there.
0: And so being curious, was normal in your house? Was it encouraged or was it a teacher who was feeding that development of your curiosity, do you think?
1: Good question. Um, I think it was normal in our family. My my mother uh, was a teacher. So she was my teacher when I was very small, when I was three years old. And um, and I guess it, it helps because she always would think about school and when she would see something, she would always think about the potential for learning. But we were around, so we would be... Uh, test subjects, I guess, uh, for Mm -hmm. all those things. So it felt natural.
0: school was good for you. It was a positive experience. You did okay in school?
1: Yes, it was a positive experience. I mean, like every kid, I had uh, some fields that I would prefer to others. Uh, I was really not that much into French. I would prefer greatly the mathematics and and physics. But um, yeah, other than that, it, it was okay.
0: Yeah, so it made sense then for you to go on and, and study engineering like you did. That made sense. When you were applying for, at this stage, when you're about to go into, you know, university, is space a part of your plan or is that clear to you at that point in your life?
1: Yes. And actually, that that's something that helped me a lot. I, I knew that I wanted I wanted something there. And so I had kind of a goal. I I would like to to go in this direction. So each time I had a choice to make, do I go for this university or this one? I would not always be able to have my first choice. Uh, For example, for engineering school, of course in France, you have uh, Super Aero who is a very famous um, engineering school focusing on on aeronautics and aerospace and space. I didn't have the marks to uh, to go there. I was not good enough for that, so I just looked at what was available to me and the one that was bringing me a bit closer to my dream. then I would take this path, and that 's it so it was kind of a compass that helped me to make decisions. so I never felt uh completely overwhelmed when I had to to make big decisions uh, which uh, path to follow for university and that kind of things I would Try to remember. Yeah, I want to go there. So, you know, this one brings me a bit closer—not that much, but still. So, I will choose that.
0: And why space, Roman? What what is it about space? What made you so curious about it?
1: I think it, it comes down to curiosity once again. Uh, space is um, is the new frontier. It's something that we still have a lot to learn from, and it's still an extreme environment. So a lot of things happening there are brand new and we can still be curious about them. There are still new discoveries to do in the in space field. So space for me is is quite wide. I don't limit myself to human space flight where I work now, but um, mm. but yeah, it's everything about um, black holes to dark matter, all those things I'm always interested in, in the mm-hmm. new discoveries that you can see on um, on the newspapers and And talking to the scientists who are working on that is always a a great pleasure.
0: When you were finished college, you want to be a part of space. Did you have a clear idea of what that was going to look like? Or I just want to be in that environment around people that are exploring or researching that field.
1: I wish I I could have a good answer to you for that. But Mm. no, actually, I finished school and... I didn't have any link, direct link with uh, with space itself, and uh, and so I looked for a first job, and I didn't want to spend too much time looking, so I took um, applied to a few opportunities. But my engineering school was strongly linked with the automotive industry, so the mm-hmm. my main opportunities were in the automotive industry, and that's where I started working as a as a quality engineer, first mm-hmm. in my hometown, and then I moved to another town, Saint Malo, which is a very nice town. On the coast of uh, brittany and and there i was still a quality engineer but my customers so the i was working for an automotive supplier uh, producing body panels for cars in composite uh, materials so glass fiber carbon fiber and um, the customers of this uh, supplier were english ones it was aston martin mclaren lotus and even Tesla Motors for the first roadster. So I I was not working in the space world, but I still had a job that brought me to to some kind of shiny places. I, as a quality engineer, of course, I had to go to the customer to understand what was the level of quality. So I was uh, lucky enough to visit uh, Lotus car manufacturer. and and their factory. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, in Gaydon, south of uh, Birmingham, in Mm -hmm. the Aston Martin factory for my company as a supplier. And uh, towards the end, I also went to uh, Woking, where the McLaren uh, facility is. and, And that was also an experience. So, I really enjoyed, it was not always easy because those customers, they have a very high standard for quality Mm -hmm, and um, mm -hmm. and so I was the face of my company. So if they were not happy, they were not happy at me when I was there. Um, So it's not always pleasant, but it once again brought a lot of unique opportunities and, and I really enjoyed those ones.
0: And then you find out about Mars 500. How did you find out about that when you are in such a specialized area and providing these components for these very high-end car manufacturers? How did Mars 500 uh, come about into your life?
1: At that time, I was working and I remember it was during the summer and usually everything slows down over the summer in July, August and it allows you to take some time to breathe a little bit and, and look a bit ahead. And I... I just had this uh, this passion for space. I thought maybe that's a good moment to move from one field to another. So I was just thinking that I could find a quality engineer position, but in the space industry instead of the automotive one. So Mm -hmm. I just started to look around what was available on the internet. and, And I did that for a few weeks. And then a couple of months later, I was on the ESA website and there I saw a call for candidates for the Mars 500 mission. And I thought, yeah, what that? And looked one year and a half, 520 days in Russia. I so thought, that sounds interesting. I just applied. I mean, it took me a few days to fill up all the, the paperwork and all the questionnaires and everything. But um, yeah, quite quickly I applied for this mission. In my head, then, when I applied, there was no way I would be taken. But still, I didn't want to have any regret and I applied.
0: So Mars 500 was where six people simulated life as if they were on Mars. So you never got to go outside throughout that whole mission. What do you think you got right for them to even consider your application as a strong candidate? What do you think you had in that application that set you apart?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, right? I think the first part um, is that this selection was focusing on this year and a half uh, study Mm. and being willing to spend one year and a half um, in uh, in the mock-up of a spaceship, not that many people applied, like seriously applied to it, whereas 300 to 400 on the application I applied to. There was a previous one for Mars One hundred, but it was for the the overall study. So it was a set of, um, a cycle of different isolation studies, two weeks, two weeks, uh, 105 days, and 520 days. So most of the people applied, but they may not have been considering these 520 days. And effectively, when the final study of 520 days kicked out, uh, not so many people were still interested. And that's why ISA needed to restart a selection for this study specifically. So already numbers were maybe a bit down because of the duration of this uh, mission. The second is that when I applied, I did it on my own. I thought, okay, I I had two motivations, let's say. One was more um, selfless. It was, I really wanted, if I could, uh, to bring my little stone uh, to pave the way towards Martian exploration. And uh, the second one was more selfish. I wanted to go through one or two steps of the selection so that I could know somebody who works in the field and, and that person could mm-hmm. help me to, to find a job as a quality engineer in the space industry. Of course, and, yeah. and so I applied. And then I talked about it to my closest ones and to my friends. And some of my friends would say, oh yeah, that's great. Uh, We're behind you, let's go for it. That's a great. Uh, great project. But most of the, the other ones, and, and my family especially, they just asked me, that, why? <laughs> why do you want to spend so much time so far away from us? We don't understand. And I think that helped me because from the very beginning, I had to explain to the people closest to me why I thought it was important in general and why I thought it was important for me too. And when I had, um, on the second step of the selection, the psychological interview, um I, I was asked a question, but then I already answered to the closest person to me. So the answers came more freely or more nicely. Yeah. And I think yeah. it helped.
0: You get there and I'm sure there was lots of preparations in place, but closing the door that day, the very first day, what was that like then as you knew you had 520 days ahead of you?
1: So on, on that day, on the 3rd of June 2010, um, that was a crazy day. Actually, the, the past few days had been crazy days. And it was just a, a whirlpool of emotions, of activities, of things happening all around me. So I had been in rush of three months for the training of this experiment. Mm. But mm-hmm. I knew that I would be part of the final uh, crew only three weeks, one month before entering the modules. So in one month, because I still couldn't believe it really before. I -hmm. I was always Mm -hmm. an outsider and I said, yeah, I'll do my best, but there is no chance I'm, I'm selected. So then in just one month, I had to make sure that I could disappear from the earth for a year and a half. So it was a lot of paperwork. It was, uh, I had to quit my previous job. Um, It was communicating with as many people as possible, making sure that I would be able to reach out to them, even though I couldn't use the internet. So it was a lot of preparation on my side. And on the outside, all the scientists were there and they wanted to have a last minute baseline data collection. They wanted to see us, they wanted to make sure that we would understand exactly how to use their uh, protocol, their equipment inside the modules, because that would be our work to to do science. and at the same time, as we were getting closer to entering the modules, uh, journalists would be there and they would ask questions. You know, how do you feel about disappearing for a year and a half? And, um, and what did uh, your family think about it? And uh, plenty of questions. And the last few days, my family came for the entry inside those modules. So mm-hmm. I wanted to spend time with them. And so my days were just not long enough and I, I was Barely sleeping uh, just to spend time with my family, with some friends, and working and preparing um, this, uh, this whole mission and answering questions for journalists. So when we entered the modules uh, as a team the six of us, the door was locked behind us and was sealed. And I just felt like, whew, like yes, I yes, could yeah. finally, it's starting, I could breathe. We knew that people would stay around the modules and would uh, would stay inside the control room for um, at least a couple of hours. So we were not completely free, but the noise and uh, the people around, they just, uh, they were not there anymore. And we could finally breathe a little bit. And so that was, it was a great moment. It was, the mission was starting. We were training for three months for that. So finally it was starting and it felt great.
0: You never stepped outside again for another 520 days. Nope. And how did you mentally get through that knowing that you're effectively in a warehouse somewhere or a hangar in Russia and just outside only a few feet away is the real world and you're in this mock-up spacecraft. How did you get through that mentally, Rowan?
1: So The first thing is that when when I entered inside those modules, I consciously told myself, well, this is now my universe. Everything I cannot do here, I will just do it in a year and a half. And um, it helped um, a few times throughout uh, this year and a half. Actually, humans can adapt quite, Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say easily, but they can adapt to a lot of things. So we just created our own little routine and... This life, which is kind of strange in many ways, became normal for us. So thinking about these modules, and, and we knew exactly where we were, but quickly enough, um, my reason knew exactly where I was. I, kn- I knew exactly who was working around and what time of the day it was. But I felt a real distance. I felt like the our modules had been taken and brought on top of a mountain in the middle of the desert and I felt like thousands of kilometers were separating us from mission control even though I knew it was just 50 meters away.
0: Gosh that's amazing and what helped what were the things as part of that mission that kind of got you through it were there any things that really helped you get through that?
1: Um, Yes of course and I think it's, it's quite personal. Each of us had different ways of coping with, uh, with this situation. Um, I know that for me, uh, communication with the outside was very important. Even though we couldn't communicate directly, I could write messages that I would send to the control center and then one uh, an ISA person, a psychological support, she would take those messages and put them on the internet and send them to uh, my closed ones. And, and that was very important for me and it helped for the whole mission. The other thing is that we all had ups and downs in in our motivation, in our mood. Uh, The good thing is that we didn't have them at the same time. So as a team, uh, that's how we would go through. I remember that, and I didn't realize it at the time, but one of the difficult moments for me was in August, September, 2011. For different reasons. The first one, it was experiments. we were doing our job. It was to do experiments. But for the scientists to see an evolution, we had to repeat again and again and again, the same experiment with the same protocol, with the same subject, with the same devices. And after some time, it's hard to find an interest in in those experiments. Um, The second point was food. Um, By the time we had a food supply, which was we were free to eat whatever whatever we wanted, but as we didn't want to jeopardize our stocks, we are following a menu which was a weekly menu. So every mm-hmm. Monday was the same thing, every Tuesday was something, mm-hmm. and um, and we had some variety in in those menus. But um, little by little, we would lose it. For example, uh, one of I think it was on, on Wednesday at lunchtime for the main dish, it was tuna. And in our stocks, we had tuna with oil and tuna with water. And the tuna with oil was just delicious. And (laughs) and so everybody loved this one. And so after two months, no more tuna with oil. And so little by little, we would lose that kind of variety. And food was not helping that much anymore in this period. And the third factor for me was communication. As I said, I was relying a lot on those ones. And in August, September, family and friends, they are on holidays and they don't always take a computer on the beach. And, yeah. um, and on se- in September, everybody's going back to school, to university, to work. So everybody's quite busy, and I understand that. And there is no problem with that. It's just that, uh, as a fact, I received three times less messages during this period than during the rest of my 100. So I think those three factors made it harder for me, I just didn't have the energy to, to do all the, the little uh, aside, like personal tasks that I had um, planned for myself, all yeah. those personal activities. And what I realized later is that during that time, without even thinking about it, was a time when the other guys, they would invite me to play some um, multiplayer video games. All of a sudden, we would spend half an hour, one hour in the evening, just playing together and and those video games, they would bring a lot of energy because then we would jump from one room to another saying, hey, have you seen how I did this and that? And yeah. we would compete together. And as a team, in a way, they helped me to go through, thanks to little things like playing a video game in the evening. So that's what helped me.
0: They got you through it. Yes. And as it came to an end, what was that like, knowing that you were going to go back to a whole new world, really, I'm sure it changed your life irreversibly. But as you were getting close to that door opening, what did that feel like?
1: So. I would say a month before exiting the module, so one year and and four or five months after entering, um, we started to seriously think about the exit. and, And we started to talk more about what we would expect from the outside. And some of the question we had was, will the sun be too bright? We didn't see the yeah. sun for a year and a half. Yeah. Will, will the sounds will be too much? Will the, the, the smell will be too much? All those questions, we were asking them ourselves and we're trying to think what will we do after that and who will be there. So we're building up a lot of expectations and a lot of energy. We were eager to, to exit those modules to finish the mission successfully and on the day when we exited that was a blast i don't know how to say it uh, differently we uh, we came out on the 4th of november 2011 and and in front of us when we exited literally we had a wall of people. We had journalists and cameras on the ground floor, on the first balcony, and on the second balcony. Our family and friends were there and, and shouting our names, uh, happy to see us back after a year and a half of uh, of a motionless trip. And uh, and we're just looking up and trying to see them and saying hello. And we had to do a few a few things before seeing them, but quickly enough, we could test the first fresh food. And uh, embrace our loved ones once again, and, and that was just uh, yeah, that was just great and And for a few days, we're just rediscovering all the little things that we didn't see for such a long period of time and and for me, the m- most striking was the the first sunrise that I saw the next morning that was just amazing.
0: yeah, we take it for granted, don't we? We really do? We take all those things for granted mm. and Did you miss your crew? Was it hard to not have them around all the time?
1: It could have been hard. When I see what's happening with um, with our astronauts nowadays, um, I think we were very lucky because we spent a year and a half, 24-7 together with the five other guys. But then we had to do what we call the the post-flight data collection. So Uh scientists were there and for three weeks, we had to stay during the day together. So we would go home in the evening and then we would spend the whole day together continuing to work with the scientists. So in a way we were separating a little bit, but still keeping together. And after three weeks, we had to go to Germany to do some additional tests, but not everybody could go. So the team, the group separated um, two stayed in moscow and four went to to germany so we said goodbye to some of them but we're still kind of together and then from munich with diego with the other european participant we went to paris because Isa had prepared a whole tour for us and so we said goodbye to the two other guys and we continued and we toured with diego for three four days and only after that they say goodbye to Diego and we all went our separate ways so it was not a hard cut and we had time to talk to readapt and so I think we were lucky and Mm -hmm. I don't think it was planned this way but it helped a lot
0: I can imagine yeah And then, since I've known you, you've been involved in crew support for uh, the ESA astronauts, for some ESA astronauts at the Astronaut Centre in Cologne, which is where you are now. Tell us a little bit about what that role is like and what you find satisfying about that for yourself.
1: So it was in 2013. A few months later, I applied to this position of um, crew support engineer. I didn't really know exactly what it meant, and and it took me a few months to enter more deeply in the subject. But crew support means that our role, because we are a team, our role is to facilitate the daily life of the astronauts so that they can focus on their mission. So it's plenty of little things uh, like organizing their bonus food, so the food that they will eat in the space station in space, and um, all the way down to coordinating, organizing the communication between the family and the astronaut while the astronaut is in, um, on mission in space uh, and um, accompanying the families or the astronaut during a launch campaign. And uh, lately it was mainly in, in Baikonur, Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was involved in plenty of little subjects. It's hard to define um, mm-hmm. it's easier to define it uh, by default so for example an astronaut going to space will have to do a lot of science will, needs to be trained to know how to handle um, all the devices on the space station and needs to be in good health for the whole mission so science, uh, medical, training all that I don't touch uh, everything else directly or indirectly I have an impact on it so for me, the whole joy of, uh, of this work is to be even closer to, to this um, space world. And, and here we're talking about human space uh, flight um, mm-hmm. that was making me dream when I was a teenager. So I could really enter this world and, be, and live um, crazy and unique events. Uh, my God, for my work, I had to go to 10 rocket launches in Baikonur. How, how hard is it when you love space? I mean, um, so, so I felt very lucky and, um, and grateful to, to be that close to space flight, human space flight uh, as it is happening and, and to participate yeah. in all those events.
0: Well, I've seen you in action. I've gone to one live launch and that was in Baikonur in June 2018 when um, Alexander Gerst, our German, astronaut from our ESA astronaut corps and you were crew support for Alexander and we met there briefly and I would see you you know in in Baikonur there's no sort of delineation made between the VIPs and then the people there's not that many of us that go to witness the launch we're all kind of gathered together in the same places at the same Mm. time so I was able to see you do your job and I could see that it is many things on at the same time I could see that you were constantly taking care of of Alex's family with a lovely gentle touch and that you were organizing a lot of things that nobody else would see. My perception of watching you during that launch trip that I was on was that a lot of the work that you do appears to be invisible, which is why you're good at your job is that nobody actually knows. Nobody can actually define what you do because there are so many parts to it. You know, oh, and I could see how relaxed the family were and I could see how connected they were to you. And I could see that all the time, even when we met for like 10 seconds, your eyes were always on them. That's a very special kind of person that can do a job like that, I think.
1: Well, thank so. you for that. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, know, launch campaigns is a, is a unique um, and a critical event. And, and for us as crew support, it's really important that um, the astronaut trusts us because we are with their spouse, kids, parents, friends, close friends and they have like a hundred thousand of things that they need to prepare just before blasting to space. And um and so if they trust us to take good care of their families, that's already a big weight um released from their shoulders. So that's yeah, that's I mean, why we put a lot of um, attention to, to those too.
0: Mm-hmm. I can see it and, and I can understand, I can imagine that they're worrying about their families and they can't afford to because they're, they've are they got so many other things to do. Mm. And then you go back then when they return to Earth, when they return. um, So up until this year anyway, that's in Kazakhstan again to go back as as the Soyuz returns to Earth. Who knows in the future if it will be on, on the US soil. But so what do you do when to help them when they return then, Roman?
1: So for a lending campaign, there are Less people, only operational people go there. And as crew support, we are focusing on the astronaut. So we have the crew surgeon who is really uh, looking after the health of the astronaut. And for us, it's everything else. So it's little things like when everything goes well, it's little things like the clothes of the astronaut. When an astronaut mm-hmm. comes back to Earth on a Soyuz flight, they're wearing those white and blue uh, scaphandons, the so-called scaphandons. And this one is removed just um half an hour after um landing uh, so we are still in the middle of the steps of Kazakhstan, and then they are just naked so they need their clothes, so somebody has to think about it way yeah. ahead before they launch, so that's part of the of our job. We also have um a satellite phone so that we can be in contact with their spouse and we can update them and hand over the satellite phone as soon as they have a few. A few seconds to reassure them and to let them talk together um, after landing. And, and of course, uh, we also are privy of all the um, activities or all the, um, the tasks that would need to be done if, uh, if anything goes, goes wrong.
0: Yeah. It's quite a life you've already lived. It is quite extraordinary all the different experiences that you've had. I mean, we could do two shows just on your work uh, in Cruise Port and on Mars 500, and maybe we will. Did you ever think that that young boy who was running around in France where he grew up, did you ever think that that you would be living the life you live now? And, And what do you think it is that's in you that has gotten you to where you are
1: now? I never imagined uh, that I would leave that now because first I didn't even know that such jobs existed. Uh, I could only see what was talked about in all the magazines and that's astronaut and that's it. So I I feel, as I said many times already, lucky that I um, could apply, and I could see those opportunities. I think, yeah, it's just a matter of um, being open and trying to be ready to catch those opportunities as they fly past you.
0: And do you think that's an attitude that you have?
1: I try. Hopefully, yes. It's It really feels like I'm coming from the countryside and I met so many brilliant people that I don't feel special compared to them. I, I feel kind of normal. And I think that helped for Master 100 because they wanted somebody who is normal so that they can test everything that they can imagine on, on those normal people. I think what helped maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit more stubborn and um, and I wanted to go to space. So even though I didn't go there directly, I still kept an eye and I still thought one day I will get there, one day I will find an opportunity. And Master hundred uh, was there and I said, let's try yeah, it's
0: uh, yeah, it is. It's a difficult question, which is why you know I, I think all of us, when we hear about people's lives that are really interesting, and I think yours is is really interesting. I think we're always trying to figure out what is it that they knew what to do at moments in life when opportunities present themselves. You know, listening to your story, to me, it seems like you're always very aware of the opportunity, and you're positively walking forward. When I hear you speak, it feels that way. And so for people listening, as their relationship with their curiosity isn't as innate as it was in you when you were a young boy, what would you tell them what value curiosity has in, in your life? What advice would you tell
1: them about that? Well, it's something that helped me and, and curiosity is once again, part of it is that I'm often curious in, in the lives of others. And I'm trying to learn from the people around me. And throughout my career, I had uh, project leaders or directors who I admired for their way of dealing with situations and dealing with people, and I was trying to learn a lot from them, and I try to apply still today. out of those lessons that I had learned, so I guess it's just building up to create a profile that uh, or a character that would be uh, interesting for. Um, a job, or for a company, or for ISA, if it's uh, if we're talking about me, and looking around you and and trying to understand where people are coming from, what are their strengths, and and how you could maybe uh, understand those strengths and and make them your own strengths in some ways, mm-hmm. um, or develop your own strengths and help the the other people around you thanks to those at least that's something I tried to apply and that I saw especially in, uh, in my previous directors in the past. And still today with, uh, with uh, my director, Fran Devine, he's quite an example.
0: Romain, you're always so fascinating to speak to and thank you so much for your time. I just had to stop asking questions at one stage because there's just, <laughs> so, many, there's just so many directions we can go in with this chat. But, but thanks again for your time and uh, maybe we'll, we'll chat with you another time.
1: Well, thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: If you like this podcast or if you like what I do or if you'd like to know more or have a question, you can sign up for updates on my website, neveshaw.ie. This podcast is funded by my loyal Patreon subscribers, the subscription content service that allows me to create and share exclusive videos, advanced episodes of this podcast, provide special deals and discounted offers for patrons of my work. And thanks to those patrons, I get to make the work I want to make and can continue in my mission to get to space in earnest. And in return, I get to include them all in the adventures every step of the way. I couldn't do any of it without their support, and I will be forever grateful to them. So thanks. And maybe you'd like to become a patron too. So if you would like to support my mission to get to space as storyteller, further details of Patreon's membership benefits and about this podcast, upcoming events and activities, they're all available from my website, neveshaw.ie account. I'd love to hear from you. But we can connect in other ways too. If you're on Twitter, my handle is Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. If you're on Instagram, it's Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. Or on Facebook, follow my page, Get Neve to Space. If you just want to watch more content, you can check out my videos on my YouTube channel, Neve Shaw. Humans of Space is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studio, Oxford in the UK, with music by Tom Beasley.